Have you ever felt far from someone? Have you ever felt this distance between you and somebody else? Sometimes you feel that distance because there is a distance. The person has traveled. They've gone away. Maybe a a, a soldier going off to war and their wife or their husband is, is sitting there waiting. And there's this immense distance. And in that case, it's pretty obvious. It's not easy. I don't mean to say that at all. But it's pretty obvious what the distance is. It's distance. It's miles away. It's the fear of what they're going through. But there are other times that you can be right next to somebody. You can see them on a day-to-day basis or throughout the week, and you still feel this distance between you and them. Maybe there's a secret. Something about you that they don't know. Something that if they knew, it would change your relationship. Maybe something from your past, something that you've done, something you want to keep hidden. And so when you're with them, they have no clue that that's going on, but it's, it's blaring in your mind. And so there's kind of this wall between the two of you. Sometimes it's a past hurt. Maybe you know sometime you've hurt that person. You've said something unkind. You did something that was unkind. You know it was wrong, and maybe they know too. And so there's this tension that you can cut with a knife. Sometimes the other person acts like it's fine, but you know it's not. You know that you should seek forgiveness. But you feel, even though you're right next to them, that there's this immense distance between them. Maybe they've hurt you. You've been cut to the core by something they've said or done, and yet they haven't apologized. And they're going on like everything's fine, and you're thinking everything is not fine. And you might be sitting or walking or standing or in the same room with that person, and yet your heart and your mind feel like they are worlds apart. I love my kids. I love hugs from my kids. I love when they just come up and melt into my arms. Lindsay is now 12. She'll be 13 soon. Uh, A hug from a 12, almost 13-year-old is a little different from a hug from a 2-year-old. You know, so I don't say this to say that I love one more than the other. But I have to say, I love, there's just something special about hugs from my 2-year-old daughter. Because she completely melts into you. And you can hold her. You know, she mostly fits. She's getting a little too big for it. But there's something special about when she crawls up into our arms. And it's usually because she's sick or tired. But we take what we can get. But she crawls up into our arms and just puts her head on our shoulder. And Becky and I might be rushing around, trying to get dinner ready, trying to get the kids out the door, whatever it is. And if we turn and we see the other person and Ainsley's just melted into their arms, it's sort of like, I need you to go. Oh, you're getting your Ainsley time. Okay, you go ahead and take that. Because we know how precious that is, that nearness. No barrier, no tension. Just love and acceptance and warmth and absolute trust and surrender. These are two far ends of a spectrum, aren't they? Does anybody remember Grover from Sesame Street? Yeah. See, back then we didn't have Common Core because we didn't need it. We had Sesame Street. That was, a, that was like our Common Core. We all learned from Sesame Street. Do you remember how Grover taught the concepts of near and far? Anybody remember? It was like one of my favorite things from Sesame Street ever. He would start at the back of the room and he'd go, far? And he would run to the front. He would go, near. And he would run to the back, far. Thank you. Four, four years of Bible college, three years of seminary. I can do Grover. That's right. Money well spent. 
But those concepts of far and near are difficult for kids. They're hard to explain. I think for us as adults, they're still difficult. We can feel that separation, but maybe we can't put our finger on it. Why am I so far from this person? What about with your relationship with God? Do you ever feel like there's a barrier there? Maybe you know there's something you're holding on to in your heart. Maybe there's something from your past, a hurt or a sin, and you say, God can't forgive that. God can't overcome that. I can't draw near to God. Who am I to ever come close to the Lord of heaven and earth? And we can feel that separation. Sometimes people talk to me about coming to church, and they say, I just, I can't come to church. I'm not like those people. They're so happy. They're so good. They're so wonderful. I'm not like them. And what I hear is, I'm far away. And they know it in their heart. In Ephesians chapter 2, we covered verses 1 through 10 last week on Easter morning. The beauty of the gospel That though we are dead, we can be made alive in Christ. Now Paul shifts gears a little bit. And he uses a little bit of a different imagery than death and life. He talks about far and near. Look at verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, Paul is addressing a division in this early church, a division that existed in many of the early churches. It was a division between Jews and Gentiles. And there's a lot to that, and we're going to look at that more next week. Why was there this division? How do we relate to that that separation today? But before he gets into a passage where he really deals with the separation between these two people groups, he first starts by talking about their separation from God. Because if we're going to draw near to one another, we need to understand that only happens, can only happen, if we first draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And so he starts by talking to this group within the church, these Gentiles. To be a Gentile in Scripture is very simple. It means to not be a Jew. Anybody that is not Jewish is a Gentile. Okay? Pretty easy to remember, right? It meant everybody else. It was kind of the catch-all phrase. So there was no specific you know, nationality that was Gentile. It was just everybody that wasn't Jewish. And if you know a little bit of the history... The Jewish people had all these promises, this rich Old Testament of God dealing with his people. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because it it was beautiful and wonderful, but then it caused some tension in the early church. Because here were these people that had this rich Old Testament history and all these promises and these people who didn't. And now they're getting together, one in the same, sitting in the same seats like you are today, and they're saying, wait a minute, we're different. And some thought, well, we're better because we're Jewish. Look at all of the the history that we have with God. We're the people that are close to God. And some of the Gentiles were thinking, how can we be close to God? We're different. We're separated. And the Jews would look down on them. We're going to talk about that division more next week, as I said. 
and apply it to some contemporary issues in our country and in our churches here today. But before we're going to understand how to be brought near to each other, we need to first understand how to be brought near to God. And if we're going to understand how to be brought near to God, we have to start by understanding that we are far away. Look at what he says in verses 11 through 12. He starts off by saying, Therefore, remember. Remember. That word comes up a lot in Scripture. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament as God tells his people, remember I am the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I parted the Red Sea. Remember how I gave you the law. Remember how I overcame your enemies. He's always telling them, remember who I am and what I've done for you. They're amazing things. In the New Testament, we're told to remember the cross. Remember what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, later on, we're going to take communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance. He said, when you do this, you're remembering me. It's good to remember the amazing things that God has done for us. Is Paul talking about something amazing here that we are to remember? Look at what he tells them to remember. Now again, remember, this is, remember, there you go. This is a group of people within the church that others were looking down on them, and they might have been tempted to look down on themselves. And look at what Paul tells them to remember. Remember, verse 12, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Wow, Paul, what a pep talk. Whew, thank you so much. That's what I want to remember, just how awful things were. Paul wants them to remember that they're separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant. He wants them to remember who they were before they came to know Jesus Christ. Now, he's tying in again to this rich history. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to the Jewish nation of Israel first. He came to save those that were his own. The Gentiles came in after that. And Paul is saying, look, you were excluded from that at the beginning. He says, you don't have that in your history You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You weren't part of God's chosen people. You were an outsider. He's saying you were a foreigner to the covenant. God had all these rich promises, these contracts with his people. They would be his people. He would be their God. He had a contract that he would give them a land, that he would give them a king forever on their throne. And then in Jeremiah 31, he makes a new covenant with them that he would write his law on their hearts. He would change them from the inside out. And Paul says to these Gentiles, all those covenants that I, that God gave to his covenant people, they didn't apply to you. You were an outsider to them. And then he said, you were without hope. He said there there was nothing in your background, nothing that you could look at in and of who you were, that you could say, look at me, I'm a Gentile, I'm so wonderful. He said, no, you, you had no hope. And as if that wasn't enough, he goes further, he says, you didn't have God. You were without God. Now this doesn't sit really well, does it? Why does Paul start by saying, I want you to remember how separated from God you were? We don't like to talk about these things. We want to think positive thoughts. I looked up some quotes by a popular preacher today. I won't say his name. I just want you to listen to these. 
He said it's easy to get negative because you get beat down. You go through a few disappointments. It's easy to stay in that negative frame of mind. Choosing to be positive and having a grateful attitude is a whole cliche, but your attitude is going to determine how you're going to live your life today. So you just need to have a better attitude. When you're feeling separated from God, when you're feeling like something's wrong, you just need to change how you're thinking. If you can overcome that way of thinking and you can think better thoughts, oh, you'll be fine. He says in another place, let go of yesterday. Let today be a new beginning and be the best that you can be and you'll get to where God wants you to be. Where is all the responsibility for change in those quotes? That's right. It's on me and it's on you. See, that message sells so many books and it builds mega churches and it makes people think everything's great. Oh, I can just be better. But it is such a trap and a snare because what happens when you're in a situation that your good intentions can't overcome? What happens when your positive thoughts can't get you out of that rut? What happens when you have a loved one It is so messed up. What are you going to go to them and just say, you know, if you could just think a little better, if you would just be more positive, all this would change. I'm assuming we all have people in our lives, and maybe it's you that's in your life, that you're thinking that that message is not going to save them. It's not good enough. Paul is telling them they need to remember their separation from God. See, here's the amazing thing. If I know that apart from Jesus Christ, I'm a wicked, awful sinner, guilty of hell and death, what can the world throw at me to make me feel any worse? Right? Let me just tell you something. This morning, right before this service, I got an email. I got an email, somebody left the church, and they laid into me. And I shouldn't have read it, I shouldn't have opened it. I knew it as soon as I saw it, I shouldn't read this. And I read it, and they just say awful things. It's just this attack. But here's the thing. I know that apart from Jesus Christ, the person that wrote those things, is barely even scratching the surface of how awful I really am. They're sugarcoating it. And they don't even know it. They can't get to me and bring me down because what I know to be true about myself in Jesus Christ is far worse than what that person is saying. I know that. I've owned that in my Christianity. The first part of the gospel is to know that you're a sinner, to accept that apart from Jesus Christ, you are guilty and going to hell. There is nothing that the world can throw at me that can possibly change that and make me wonder if I'm good enough. Because my effort to be good enough is not on me. It's on Christ. When we know that our separation from God is real, and that it's more than we can ever overcome, then we'll quit trying harder and trying to be a little bit better. And instead, we'll look to God for the true solution. And look what he says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think of these contrasts that Paul is dealing with. He says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, you were dead. We looked at that last week. You're dead in your sins. You're lost. You're hopeless. You're not lying in the grave going, man, if I just tried a little bit harder, I could just pop right out of here. You're gone. 
And then in verse 4, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Look at the contrast. So here he has another contrast. In verses 11, in verse 11 and 12, he says, remember who you were apart from Christ. You were excluded. You were outside. You were lost. He says, you need to understand that. Then you can understand the contrast. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We lessen the gift of God's grace. We lose sight of the power of the gospel when we cheapen one side of that equation. When we explain away sin, when we make it just something that you need to overcome on your own, you just need to try harder, we cheapen how great the grace of God is. And Paul will have none of that. He says, let's hold these two things together so you can see how great the grace of God is. But it's worse than that. Because when we do that, then we don't have the grace of God to hold up to somebody that's really struggling. All we have is a call to do a little bit better. Change that habit. Change that attitude. And they've probably tried that a million times over and it hasn't worked. Only in Christ can we see these extremes. You were dead and you can be made alive. You were completely separated, but you can be brought near. Now, Paul's tying into some great Old Testament imagery here. You see, he's dealing with this tension between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were people that lived their lives near to God. It was the defining trait of being Jewish. God had come to them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he tells them to set up something right in the middle of their camp as they're wandering through the wilderness. It's called the tabernacle. And what was so special about the tabernacle, yes, it was place of worship, yes, it was part of their daily ritual, but what was special about the tabernacle is that's where God dwelt among his people. Talk about near to God. They were his neighbors. They lived right there. Just down, take a left at the third tent on the right, and right there is the tabernacle. That's where God lives. I'm near to him. I'm right there. It was God's dwelling place among them. And everything they did as a nation flowed out of that concept that they lived in God's presence. When you read the Old Testament law, and it's hard, but when you read it, you need to read it through that lens. This was God explaining to the people what it meant to live in his holy presence. And it changed everything about them. For them, the tabernacle and the law was a constant reminder that they were near to God. They lived in his very presence. But this nearness to God required constant recognition and constant dealing with their sins. I'm reading through the Old Testament law right now in my own personal devotion time. It's tough. You're slugging through chapter after chapter of how to kill an animal, what to eat, what not to eat. It's tough. But if you can get a big picture of what's going on, you realize that every day there was ongoing death and blood and sacrifice in that tabernacle. Why? Because they lived in the presence of a holy God. And it was a constant reminder to them, you are sinners living in the presence of a holy God. 
Every day the priests would do specific sacrifices to make atonement, to cover the offense between the people and God. Once a year they would make a special sacrifice to cover anything that they might have missed. And all of this involved the death of something. And that thing's blood poured out, spread, sprinkled, applied in some way to the place of God's dwelling. And the Bible says, so that their sins would be covered and God could dwell among them so that he could be near to them. The nearness to God required constant sacrifice and blood to pay for their sins. And so Paul's tapping into that now. And he's saying, you Gentiles, let's look at what you can claim. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. Their nearness to God is not about a building. It's not about a tent. It's not about some flaps of canvas somewhere. It's about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to dwell among them. John 1 describes the coming of Christ like the tabernacle. It describes Christ as the Word of God, the greatest communication, the incarnation of who God is. And then in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And that phrase there, made His dwelling among us, is literally, He tabernacled with us. The dwelling place of God was Jesus Christ. And wherever Christ went, you were near to God. And Paul is telling the Gentiles, now in Christ Jesus. It's not about some law. It's not about a building. It's not about a bunch of animals. It's about Jesus Christ. You can be brought near to God. And then he says, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament makes it very clear. The problem between us and God, our sin, can never ultimately be overcome through animals. The guilt was a human guilt. The price was a human price. The death was a human death. And so God had to become man, live among us, and die in our place for him to be our sacrifice. The blood of Jesus Christ poured out is completely different than the blood of anything that happened in the Old Testament. So much so that the New Testament makes it clear it makes all of that obsolete. All of that pointed ahead to the perfect fulfillment of Jesus Christ. But now, the blood of Christ has cleansed those who are near to God. Has cleansed the dwelling place of those who are near to God. You have been brought near Paul wants his readers to know that whatever the world says about them, whatever the religious elite might say about them, whatever their own doubts might say about them, they have been, through Jesus Christ, brought near to God. I want to give you four things to take away from this. To understand and to own and hold on to our nearness to God. Number one, we've got to hold on to the complete gospel. We've got to hold on to the complete gospel. The gospel is very simple. I am a sinner who deserves death. Christ died in my place. I have new life in him. I am a sinner who deserves death. Christ died in my place. I have new life in him. I am a sinner who deserves death. Christ died in my place. I have new life in him. Some of you are chuckling. How many of you, and it's okay to laugh, 
But how many of you, when somebody says, why do you believe in Jesus? Go, um, ah, uh, uh. If somebody says, how do you know you're a Christian? You go, well, ah, uh, I've been to church. Somebody says, how do you become saved? You know, as deacons, we, we ask people that when they join the church. How do you know you're saved? How, how does somebody come to know salvation? And people are always like, well, um, you know, you got to read your Bible. And those things are good. Three things should roll off our tongue without even thinking about it. I know I'm a sinner destined for hell. I know I'm a sinner. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. He died in my place. I'm given new life in Him. He rose from the grave. Those three things, I'm a sinner, He died in my place, I have new life in Him, should be the immediate answer of every Christian. If we have been brought near to Jesus Christ through that truth, then that truth is what we need to communicate to others. And we can't cheapen any part of it. We can't overlook the sin part. That's becoming so popular in the world today. Well, you know, Christ died for you because he just, he just loves you and wants to help you along the way. No, he died for you because you were going to hell and you needed a desperate solution. And God gave that to you. We cheapen the new life. Well, he's going to help you to live a little bit better. No, he doesn't help you to live a little bit better. He helps you to die to yourself and to be brought to completely new life in Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. Jesus died in my place. I have new life in him. When we change the gospel, we lose the real hope that is there. We can't allow that. That's the first thing. We must know, communicate, and hold on to the gospel. The second thing is this. If you're here and you're feeling far away from God, I want you to know that Christ and his sacrifice for you are all that are necessary for you to come back to God. That barrier that you feel, that dividing wall of hostility between you and God has been conquered and ripped to shreds by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It is gone. It doesn't matter how big your history is. It doesn't matter how big that guilt is. It doesn't matter how awful that thing is. It is gone in Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel to overcome sin is immense. And we need to remember it. If you're here, and this is number three. So number one is we must know, communicate, and hold on to the gospel. Number two, you need to apply that gospel to yourself. Number three, we need to apply that gospel to others. If you're here and you know someone who is distant from God, Maybe it's somebody personally, a family member or a friend, and, and you know they're struggling and they're so distant. And maybe they're one of those people that you say, oh, I just, I don't know. God can't change them. You, you don't know how hard their heart is. Sometimes people introduce me to friends and beforehand they kind of pull me aside. and You know, he's got really bad language. I'm really sorry. And, and you know, he's just a sinner. He's got struggles with alcohol and drug abuse. And, and it's like, you don't have to apologize to me. I know who I am apart from Jesus Christ. That person's got nothing to apologize for. I'm just as bad as they are. We need to apply that grace to others. As Christians, we get tempted to look down on people. And this was a problem in the early church between the Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were acting like they were never sinners. They were. We need to be careful we don't do the same thing. If the worst sinner in the world walked through our doors, they should feel the same love as anybody else in this room. Because we know who we are apart from Christ. We're not offended by their sin. We're not hurt by it. We understand. We should say, hey, we're just like you. 
So that's the first part of loving someone who is far from God. We need to treat them with grace as we remember our own sin. But then the second thing goes with it. We must point them to Jesus Christ unapologetically and unreservedly. Point them to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, people don't need to dry up from drugs and alcohol. They need Jesus Christ. And that might be part of His work in their life as they come to Him, but their greatest need is to be reconciled, brought near to God, because in the presence of God, people are changed. We need to point them to Jesus Christ. As we think about somebody that's far from God, we also need to know that the gospel can change them. The gospel can change them. Paul traveled the Roman world to some of the darkest places, some of the worst, most awful situations. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was arrested. Why did he do it? He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do we really believe in the power of the gospel to change lives? When we look at somebody and we say, oh, you're just too far from God, and hopefully we don't actually say that out loud, but sometimes we think it in our own hearts, oh, no, God can't save that person. Paul understood that because he was that person. He was as far from Christ as anybody could have been. He hated Jesus. He persecuted those who were his followers. He tried to arrest them and put them to death and sometimes even succeeded. He knew how far he was from Christ. And yet Christ called him. Christ saved him. And Christ used him. And he knew that wherever he went, Jesus was with him, doing powerful work through the power of the gospel. Don't give up on people. The gospel is powerful to change and to save. Finally, number four, live near to God through Christ. There was a beautiful concept in the Old Testament that was so concrete and so obvious. They lived in the presence of God. He lived right there with the tabernacle and later on with the temple. They should have in their better moments, understood that and that that changed everything about them. I think as Christians today, we forget that. That Christ's dwelling place is now in us. And so we live in the very presence of God. We need to let God change us because of that. We need to live holy lives because of that. And as Paul's going to talk about in the passage to come, we need to live in unity with others who have been saved. By Christ. We're about to take communion. Communion is a celebration of the nearness we have through, with God through Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful concept that because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, our sin, that dividing wall of hostility between us and God, has been obliterated. And I know if you're anything like me, You probably struggle with that from time to time. You struggle to accept that for yourself. I want to challenge you as we move into a time of communion. Just pray and say, God, help me to accept what is true of me because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, the power of the truth that we are brought near to you through Jesus Christ cannot be overstated. Father, 
apart from Christ, we are all distant. We are all strangers. We are all outcasts in your kingdom. And God, I know it's not popular to talk about that today. And yet, as I see the Apostle Paul writing, he knew how important it was to hold on to and understand and remember who we are apart from Christ. As ugly and awful as that picture is, to own it, to say, yes, I accept that I am a sinner. Because then we can truly see your grace and your mercy for what it really is. It is new life. It is victory over sin and death. It is not just a little step to be made better. It is a complete change from death to life, from far to near. And then, God, if we can own that for ourselves and understand that, we can offer that to others. And so I pray in the quietness of this moment as we take communion together. May those voices in our heads and in our own hearts, whether from outside or inside that are attacking us, may they be silenced at the cross of Jesus Christ. May we know that though we are guilty of sin and death, we are near to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.